Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Before I welcome Tim to come and speak to us, um, to continue our series, I'm going to read the scripture, which comes from Luke 9, uh, verses 28 to 36. It should come up on the screen. About eight days later, Jesus took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his exodus, which he was about to, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was still speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from, from the cloud saying, This is my son, who am I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at the time what they had seen. So please put your hands together to welcome the wonderful Tim Frisbee. Thanks, Baz. Good afternoon, evening. Is it afternoon or evening? I never can tell this time of day in the summer. Whatever that is, hello. It's great to be with you again. Um, It was great to be with some of you at the team summer party a couple of weeks ago. How many people were there? A great evening. I think silent discos are now my new favorite thing to do. They are so much fun. Um, Halfway through the evening, Jack's my wife and I realized we were a bit hot, so we went outside. And then we realized that our wireless headphones carry the sound outside with us too. And so we spent the rest of the evening outside on the pavement dancing. Um, This is a picture, a very bad picture, taken from inside the venue. Um, outside, and we were there for like maybe two hours, and the number of people driving past, walking past that were kind of infected with our joy and celebration was incredible. We had about 40 people who tried to come in to the party, and we had to turn them away, so sorry, this is a private function, but maybe this is kind of a, a missing branch to our outreach. our outreach. Silent disco outreach is a thing that we should be doing. So just keep that in mind, maybe... Joel, there's a lot of support here. Maybe you guys should start that up. Um, But during the evening, I would say that one of the songs um, played that night that seemed to generate some of the most earnest and passionate singing as well as dancing was The Greatest Show from the film The Greatest Showman. Anyone seen that? Is this a greatest show type of service? Ooh. Oh, you guys are too cool for The Greatest Showman. That is a shame. Other services, they love this. And if you haven't seen it, I guess... Most of you haven't, I shall explain it for you. Um, In The Greatest Showman, it's the kind of story based very loosely on the life of P.T. Barnum, who is credited as being the inventor of show business, or at the very least, the guy who started the first circus in New York in the 19th century. Um, And as you watch this, it's a musical, so it's like lots of singing and dancing, lots of spectacle, and you realize that P.T. Barnum is not just creating this circus to entertain and for a spectacle, he's actually doing something much deeper and more meaningful than that. In his circus, he is offering a family to belong to, that, to people who have been kind of pushed out to the edges of society, either because of the way that they looked or the color of their skin or because of the things that they were passionate about. 
And one of the lyrics in The Greatest Show goes, Colossal we come, these renegades in the ring, where the lost get found in the crown of the circus king. I mean, that is quite a lyric, isn't it? That is kind of saviour-like stuff, isn't it? And there's this idea through the film that P.T. Barnum is actually kind of this saviour figure, this heroic visionary who's created this place to belong for all these people who had been rejected by society. He says, the world may laugh at you for being small. The world may turn away in disgust because of the way that you look. The world may look down on you and dismiss you and treat you as worthless, but not here. Not here with me, in my circus, with my family. Here you are celebrated. Here you are seen. Here you are valued. And that is just a great message, which is partly why I think that The Greatest Showman has gone on to be one of the highest grossing musicals of all time, which is crazy. It made a million pounds at the UK box office for 12 weeks in a row. People just kept going back to see it time and time again. And I think it's something because of this amazing message that we have a place to belong to. But then actually, as you go through the film, you realize something about P.T. Barnum. He's not actually doing this for these lofty goals. Actually, there's something else that he is driven by. And it's this desire to be welcomed into the high society that he has been rejected by his whole life. And so you see that he's actually creating a place here for anyone to belong to, but what he really wants is to belong here. He wants to be seen as successful and to be seen as wealthy by the beautiful, rich, powerful people. And he wants that so much that he ends up exploiting his circus family just to make more and more money. And he ends up almost throwing away his, uh, his wife, his uh, marriage, um, his family, all in this pursuit of recognition and fame. So basically in The Greatest Showman, you have the story of a hero who turns out to be not quite so heroic after all. Now obviously because this is a feel-good musical, everything turns out fine in the end and it's all, guy, it's all great and there's lots of singing and dancing, everyone's happy. But this idea of a hero who promises so much and then massively disappoints us, I think that that's something that we could probably all relate to. I'm sure that most of us, if not all of us, have had an experience of someone who we really looked up to, someone that we loved and trusted, someone that we put our hopes in, ending up letting us down or hurting us or even betraying us. We've probably all had heroes who have disappointed us. Now, sometimes that is just because actually the weight of expectation we put upon people to be our hero is just too great for one person to bear. Um, Last week, for some reason, we were chatting in the office about pet deaths, the way that our pets had died. Just a little insight into Christchurch culture right there. Um, And Liam was telling the story of when he was six or seven years old, and he had a pet gerbil, and the pet gerbil got very sick. And so they took it to the vet, had this big cyst on its leg, was very ill, The vet looks at it and says, I'm sorry, there is nothing that we can do because it's a gerbil, right? You don't do much with gerbils, do you? We're going to have to put it down. And Liam, um, Liam's dad at the time was a handyman, and in Liam's six-year-old eyes, he could fix anything. So Liam looks up to him and says, but daddy, you can fix him, can't you? No. Of course not. He's a handyman. He's not a miracle worker. But you can imagine Liam, kind of six years old, beard just starting to come out. He grew his beard early kind of sad, hopeful, expectant eyes, expecting his dad, this superhero of a man, to be able to do what the vet could not do. And of course he couldn't. And so the gerbil died. And I think probably a little bit of Liam died that day. Liam's understanding of who his dad was. I mean, and that happens to all of us, doesn't it? I've got a five-year-old and a three-year-old, so I'm very much enjoying being a superhero at the moment. But I understand that one day that's all going to come crashing down. And actually... 
the realization of my dad's humanity happened for me in a little bit more of a traumatic way because he actually ran over my cat in front of me. So we, uh, the house we lived in at the time had um, a garage that was just big enough for the car. So I always had to get out of the passenger side and then just wait by the front door to my dad to roll the car in and then open the door. And I was standing there one night and he's rolling the car in and my cat, Smokey, oh, Smokey, runs towards me. He didn't stand a chance. That was it. In the turn of a wheel, my dad went from hero to cat killer. I mean, that is pretty tragic, isn't it? Hopefully that didn't happen with you and your dads, but we all get to that point when we realize our dads maybe aren't the superheroes we thought they were. But the realization of the limits of our heroes isn't just something that happens to us when we are kids. It can happen to us at any age. Whenever we place too big of an expectation upon someone to fulfill our hopes and dreams, they will usually end up disappointing us, not because of their own fault, just because of their humanity. And so when we do that, whether that's with parents or politicians, whether that is with pastors or with partners, our heroes will always end up disappointing us because they are just human. They are not superhuman. But then our heroes can also disappoint us because they are not just human. They are also fallen. There's a line in one of the Batman films when Harvey Dent, who is the district attorney for Gotham City, trying to clean up Gotham, is having dinner with a whole bunch of his friends and he's warning them about putting their hopes and dreams into just one man, even if that one man is the Batman. And his reason is because we can't trust anyone to keep on the right path all the way down. Power always corrupts us. His assessment is that you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And we may think that's a little bit cynical, but actually we know from experience there's a lot of truth in that. Every revolution that has ever happened, every revolutionary fighter that has toppled some enemy has gone on to become the person that they were trying to topple in the first place. We see that in kind of a macro level, but also on a micro, micro level, we also know that the people who look so great from a distance, the people who look great on a stage or on Twitter, when we get close to them, we see actually there are cracks here that I didn't see from a distance. There's stuff in them that maybe I don't want to follow and emulate. And sometimes it's just that the private character doesn't match up to the public persona, the public gifting. Sometimes it's actually a bit more traumatic than that. And we've seen that, haven't we? These last year or so with the Me Too movement, the heroes of our culture, we have suddenly seen the stuff that's been happening in secret over years and years and years. And we realize actually these guys are not heroes. They have used their positions of power and influence over people, to oppress people, to abuse people. And we've seen that. And so we are seeing that it's not just our hero's humanity, it's also their fallenness that ends up disappointing us. But then again, they can also disappoint us, even if they are not fallen, by the very fact that they are not as close to us as we like. We all have people that we look up to and emulate, but don't we all want them to be involved in our lives? It's not just enough to have them out there for, them, for us to think that they are great. We also want them to think that we are great. We want them to be involved. And so we long for the boss's attention. Or we dream about meeting the leader in our field at some kind of event and us kind of hitting it off and then seeing the potential in us and offering to mentor us. We want these things. Or we completely kind of flip out when our heroes like our tweets or retweet us or even follow us. I mean, how incredible is that? Someone you're following follows you back. Or maybe that is just Joel Wade and John Mark Homer. I think you want to find yourself someone who looks at you the way Joel Wade looks at John Mark. 
What we really want is a relationship. You'd even travel halfway around the world just for a coffee with your hero, which is what Joel did only two weeks ago. We want that kind of ongoing relationship, but for most of us, for most of the time, that doesn't happen, does it? Our heroes stay out there. They're not involved in our lives. But that doesn't want, stop us wanting them. There seems to be something almost innate in us that causes us to look for people to fulfill that role in our lives. I mean, it's almost as if we need a hero, as if we're holding on for a hero to the end of the night. You know, Bonnie Tyler wanted a hero who's got to be strong and got to be fast and got to be larger than life, and we may have a different criteria than she did, but I think there is something within the human heart that is looking for someone far greater than us to learn from and to follow and to love, and not just that, but to be loved by And I'm sure that you will not be surprised to hear that I think that person is and can be Jesus Christ, which takes us quite nicely back to our passage for today, the transfiguration of Jesus. So the account of this incredible event is recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's also alluded to in the beginning of John's gospel. It's mentioned in one of Peter's letters and another one of John's. So this is a pretty big deal. It is really important because it reveals something of Jesus that is kept hidden in the other parts of the gospel. So in the few years before this moment, Jesus had been traveling around, preaching about the nearness of the kingdom of God um, and revealing the power of that kingdom by healing the sick. And at that time, most people would have a confused or limited understanding of who Jesus was. Now everyone, um, his friends, his enemies, the crowds knew that there was something special about this guy, that he was a pretty big deal. By the time we get to this point in the story, Jesus has taught the most profound ideas about human flourishing that the world has ever seen in the Sermon of the Mount. But he's also taught them with an authority that no one has ever heard before because his life and his teaching match up so completely. And not only that, he has healed hundreds, if not thousands of people, physically, emotionally, spiritually. People have come away from encounters with Jesus completely transformed. And then you have the miracles, the feeding of thousands from a small lunch. Um, the way that he was able to walk on water, to raise the dead, to even calm the storm with a word. Over and over and again in the Gospels, there's these things happening. You see the disciples pretty much looking at one another and saying, who is this guy? Who is this guy who can heal the sick, who can raise the dead, who can command the winds and the waves, who says he can even forgive sin? Who is he? And actually, it's not just the ministry stuff that the disciples have been impressed by. They have been living with him pretty much 24-7 for the last few years. They've traveled with him from village to village, eaten every meal with him. They've slept crammed up in a stranger's front room. They've slept out on the highways. They have done life with him. They have seen Jesus up close. He has given them an access all areas past to his whole life. So yes, they've seen him when he was in ministry mode, but they've also seen him at the end of the day when he is tired and hungry. They've seen how he interacted with people both above and below him in the social hierarchy. They'd seen him handle incredible success, but then also incredible stress and grief, the death of a friend, the murder of a cousin. They'd heard his teachings to the crowd, but then they'd also sat around a campfire and heard him speak to him, speak to them there. Jesus had opened up every single part of his life to them, and the more that they saw of him, the more they experienced firsthand his love and his compassion, his grace, his mercy, his justice, his power, the more they were convinced that this man was special, that this man was worth giving up everything to follow, that maybe even this man was the chosen one, the one sent by God to redeem Israel. But they didn't even know the half of it. 
So our story starts with Jesus taking his three best friends, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain to pray, which is a very Jesus thing to do. He loved going up on mountains to pray. And as they are praying, or at least as Jesus is praying, I love how Luke kind of puts in there that the other three are falling asleep at this point. I mean, that is just very encouraging on a personal level. If you can fall asleep in a prayer meeting led by Jesus, and there's grace for you there, there is grace for all of us. And so Jesus is praying, and Luke says that his face is changed. It literally becomes other, becomes different. Matthew's account uses a different word. He says that he is transfigured, which is the same word that we get our word metamorphosized from. Like when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, one state to another. And so Jesus, as he is praying, he has changed from this state, changed from human, frail, ordinary, into this state. Something glorious and majestic and beautiful. Something totally other. His face starts to shine like the sun, emitting light. His, light, uh, his clothes become as bright as flashes of lightning. And Luke says the three are kind of jolted awake by this. And when they look up, they are confronted by Jesus in his glory. A glory that had previously been concealed by his human body. As Paul wrote in Philippians 2, Though Jesus was and is very nature God, Although he was and is glorious and majestic and powerful, he did not consider equality with God, did not consider his divine glory something to be held onto, something to be grasped, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He gave up his glory by taking upon himself the limitations and the frailties of a human body. By being born as a man, Jesus laid aside his glory and his majesty. And for 30-odd years on earth, he would have looked just like any other Jewish peasant. There was nothing necessarily in his appearance to indicate that he was anything different than that. Definitely nothing to indicate that he was God incarnate, God with flesh on. When you met him, when you looked in his face, when you heard him speak, when you felt his power, then yes, you would have no doubt thought there is something special about this guy. Maybe something otherworldly, but there was no way that you would have guessed that he was the son of God. There's a line in Jesus Christ Superstar when Jesus is brought before Pilate and Pilate says, who is this man cluttering up my hallway? Oh, this is Jesus Christ. I'm quite surprised. You look so small, not like a king at all. And that's right, isn't it? He didn't look like anything because his glory was hidden. It was veiled. He didn't look like an earthly king, let alone the king of kings, the one through whom and for whom the whole universe was made. But here, in this moment, on this mountain, the veil is taken away. And the disciples get to see the true reality of who Jesus is for the first time. They get to see the glory that was his before the foundation of the world. The glory that would be his again after his death and resurrection. The glory that is his now. And they see Jesus, light shining from his face, lightning shining from his clothes, symbolizing the glory and the majesty, the power, the transcendence of holy, almighty God. But then the disciples notice that there are also two other people, Moses and Elijah, and Luke says that they are also appeared in glorious splendor. And Peter, being the guy who was never scared of acting and speaking before thinking, kind of blurts out, Master, it is good for the, us to be here. Let us build three tents, three shelters for, for you and for Moses and Elijah, and let's just stay up here on the mountain. And while he is speaking, I love this, before he can even finish explaining his dumb tent-building idea, 
the cloud descends upon them and covers them, and a voice speaks out from it. Now, a mountain, a cloud, a voice. This is supposed to remind us of another mountain, another cloud, another voice. 1,500 years previous to this, when Moses went up Mount Sinai and the cloud descended with thunder and lightning and Almighty God thundered out of the cloud and gave him the Ten Commandments. The Gospel writers couldn't be any clearer. At this moment, at this point, with this cloud, the presence of Almighty God has descended upon them. And God cuts Peter off mid-flow and he says, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. You see, Peter had made the mistake that so many of us make when it comes to Jesus. The fact that he suggests putting up three tents, one each for Jesus, Moses and Elijah, indicates that he thought that they may well be equal that Jesus may just be another prophet, another holy man in the long line of prophets and holy man sent in order to help us come towards God or sent to give us enlightenment or self-actualization. But before he can even finish his sentence, the glory cloud of God descends and the Almighty speaks, this is my son. Listen to him. Not these guys. Listen to him. And almost every commentator on this passage points out that Moses and Elijah here represent the law and the prophets. And so when God says, listen to Jesus, what he is saying is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. That he is the final revelation of God that the law of God was pointing towards and every prophet had spoken about. Jesus of Nazareth is not just one more prophet like Moses and Elijah helping us to get to God. He is the God that all the prophets were trying to help us get towards. He is not just one more king in the line of Israelite kings like David. He is the king of kings, the Lord of all creation. As the writer to the Hebrews says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Or as John says at the start of his gospel, in the beginning was the word, was Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. It is on the mountain that the disciples realize for the first time that Jesus is the exact representation of the eternal creator God in human form. That Jesus is God in the flesh, God with skin on, God made huggable, God made kissable, God made knowable. The transfiguration is evidence that their hero is far more glorious than they could ever have imagined. I guess this moment is a little bit like when Clark Kent takes off his glasses and pulls open his shirt and Lois Lane realizes for the first time that the bumbling reporter she thought she knew was actually Superman. Or for you Disney fans, it's the moment when Princess Jasmine takes off her hood and Aladdin realizes that the street girl he thought he was helping out is actually the daughter of the Sultan. It is like that, but a million times more than that because these guys realize that their teacher, their friend, has turned out to be the creator of the universe. Their hero has turned out to be God. And so the disciples do what any of us would have done, I think, at that point. They fall face down on the ground, absolutely terrified. The disciples have been taught that God was glorious and majestic and powerful and holy and transcendent 
And that because of that, his presence was very dangerous to sinful humanity. Sinful humanity had to be kept at a distance for its own protection. And so there was this whole kind of sacrificial system set up. And in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwelt, only one person, the high priest, could go in there, and then only once a year. And here they are, very far from the temple, very far from being considered priests, let alone the high priest, and the presence of God has descended upon them. And so you can imagine them screwing their eyes shut and kind of pushing their faces into the dirt, terrified they're going to be consumed by the holiness of God. But then Matthew writes, but Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one but Jesus. The cloud is gone. Moses and Elijah are gone. And all they are seeing as they look up is the smiling, loving face of Jesus. And he reaches down, helps them up, and he says, it's okay. You don't need to be afraid. It's still me. I still love you. I'm still for you. Yes, I am God. I am glorious. I've always been glorious. There's nothing new there. It's just that now you know it. It's okay. And from that moment on, Peter and James and John understood that the face of the person they loved most in the world, the face of the person that loved them most in the world, the face of their hero is actually the face of God. They had seen God face to face and not just live, but they have been invited in to his love. So we see that in this story, the disciples have pretty much the exact opposite experience that so many of us have with our heroes. The closer they get to Jesus, the more they find out about him, the greater and even more worthy of love and devotion he turns out to be. Instead of having to lower their expectations to take into account human frailties, their expectations are shot through the roof because their hero is also God. The mystery of the God-man, fully human, fully divine. In Jesus, they have a hero who is strong enough to take upon himself the weight of their hopes and their dreams and their expectations without being crushed. And instead of kind of ready themselves for a life of continual disappointment, of character flaws and moral lapses and misuses of power, they could just rest secure in his perfect love and righteousness. And instead of just worshipping their hero from afar, their hero comes close to them, invites them into his life, wants to spend every moment with them and loves them, loves them so much that he was willing to die for them. Because the most remarkable thing about Jesus is that after this transfiguration, after his glory is revealed and he is seen to be God incarnate, he walks down that mountain and a little while later he walks up another. Only that time he was carrying a heavy wooden cross. That time that he wasn't surrounded by a praying friends, he was surrounded by an angry baying mob. That time, instead of his clothes becoming as white as lightning, they were ripped from his body to reveal a back torn to shreds. That time, his face was once again changed, but not because it was now shining like the sun, but because it had been so beaten and bloodied and bruised that it was unrecognizable, framed that time by a cruel crown of thorns driven into his head rather than by glorious light. On that day, Nailed to a wooden cross, Jesus had absolutely no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He hung there, 
despised and rejected by mankind as one from whom people hide their faces. So on the cross, he became an outcast. But the irony is that it is on that day when he was lifted up on a cross that the glory of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, was revealed most fully because it was on the cross that Jesus revealed to the whole world that God is a God that loves us so much that he is willing to do anything, sacrifice anything, even die in order to win us and pursue us. The Bible teaches that the death of Jesus was the only way to destroy the destructive power that sin and death and wickedness had over us and over the whole of creation. It was the only way to set us free, to liberate us into life and to life, uh, life with the full, to free us into a relationship with God in his family for all eternity. And so what did Jesus do? He humbled himself, humbled himself to death, even death on the cross, because his love for us is so great. But that is obviously not the end of the story. That is not where he stayed. Three days later, he rose again victorious. And then God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus is risen and exalted. He reigns over all. He is alive, which means that now by his spirit, he is available to all of us. If it is true, which I think that it is that we are all looking for a hero, someone we can put our whole trust in, someone who we can give our whole lives to, someone we can follow and learn from without fear of being abandoned and rejected and betrayed. If it is true that we are looking for someone who can bear the full weight of our hopes and dreams and expectations without being crushed by them. If it is true that we all want someone to actually know us and take an interest in us and invite us into their lives and to love us so much that they'll be willing to die for us then I would say we need to stop looking among the people around us for our heroes. Stop looking for our culture, to our culture for our heroes and instead look to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the glorious Son of God, is the hero that we are longing for. And the incredible thing is that relationship with him is possible. It's available right now, today, relationship with the hero. The hero is available for all of us. Maybe we can have the band back. In a moment, we are going to worship this Jesus together. We are going to fix our eyes, our hearts, our imaginations upon him. And we are going to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal more of Jesus' glory to us. And after that, there's going to be an opportunity to respond to Jesus, to invite Jesus to become the hero of our lives, maybe for like the millionth time, maybe even for the first time to say, yes, Jesus, I'm looking to you. I put my trust in you. I want to live with and for you. But before we do that, I just want to say that if you are here this afternoon and the whole Jesus being God thing, the whole resurrection thing, you just don't know what you think about that, like you're having trouble with that, I just want to say that you are so, so welcome here. You really are. We hope that here you will find a community where you can explore and sincerely question some of these things. I, mean, I, th- I do find it crazy that the disciples were, the G- were with Jesus for years before they worked this stuff out. I mean, that's okay. It's okay to take a long time on your journey to work some of this stuff out. 
I think too often the church has made belief in Jesus as the Son of God as this kind of litmus test. You believe or you're in, you don't believe or you're out. Jesus did not do that with his disciples. We don't want to do that here. Our invitation to you is to become part of us, become part of this community, and together we can investigate and explore. Maybe just get to know Jesus the man, Jesus the teacher, Jesus the discipler and the healer. Get to know him first and allow this other stuff to work itself out. Because I do believe the more time we spend looking into Jesus, the more he reveals himself to us. Now, friends outside the church have said to me in the past, Tim, I wish I had your faith, I just don't. I wish I believed like you did, I just don't. I just can't, it's not in me. I wish I could, but I don't. And in their mind, I guess they see faith as completely outside of their control. Maybe it's like being tall and blonde. Some people are, some people aren't. There's just nothing we can do about it. But I think that there actually is. This next slide is a picture of three trees near my house. You can see that the tree on the left has loads of leaves, and the tree on the right doesn't have many. And you could think, well, maybe that's just because this tree is really, really healthy, and this tree is not. Or this tree has some kind of innate ability to grow more leaves than this tree but you would be wrong. The reason for the difference is because of the buildings and the shadows that they cast across these trees. And so all there is that this tree spends way more time in the sunlight than this one does. And I think our faith in Jesus grows in much the same way. The more time that we spend in the sun's light, in the light of the sun, S-O-N, the more time we spend reading about him and thinking about him and talking about him, the more time we spend worshipping him and praying to him, listening to him, trying to follow him, the more our faith in him and our love for him can grow. There is something we can do. If you want to see Jesus as a hero, there is something you can do about that. Just spend time with him. Spend time with friends chatting about him. And I can almost guarantee the more you do that, the more you will see that he is the hero that you really are longing for. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.